is Hinter Tales. I'm Rachel Dunstan Muller with stories of curious people, places, and events from the margins of history. There is no question that the story of Helen Keller's life is truly remarkable. As you likely already know, Helen was born with healthy senses. She could see and hear as well as any other young child. But when she was only 19 months old, she contracted an illness, possibly meningitis, which left her completely deaf and blind, cut off from the world. In her own words, she lived at sea in a dense fog for the next five years. But this episode is not about Helen Keller and her extraordinary journey out of darkness. This episode is about her teacher, Anne Sullivan, who entered Helen's life when Helen was seven and then chose to live in service to Helen for the rest of her life. For without Anne Sullivan, there would be no Helen Keller, not as the world came to know her. And while Anne chose to live in the shadow of her famous student, her life, in its own way, was every bit as remarkable as Helen's. And if that statement seems an exaggeration, let me assure you, it's what Helen herself believed. To say that Anne had an unhappy childhood is a profound understatement. Born in Massachusetts in 1866, Anne, or Annie, was the oldest child of Thomas and Alice Sullivan, who'd emigrated from Ireland in the aftermath of the Great Famine. The Sullivans were unskilled and illiterate when they arrived in America, but Thomas was able to find farm work in an area settled by other Irish immigrant families, including his own siblings. Despite their poverty and the fierce condescension of their non-Irish neighbors, life might have worked out for the Sullivans. But then, when Anne was still a toddler, her mother had an accident that left her crippled, and almost simultaneously developed tuberculosis. Anne's earliest memories of her mother were of a woman lying in bed or sitting propped up with pillows, very white, very thin, and very tired. Anne's father coped with his wife's illness and the other troubles in his life by drinking more and more as the years went by. Friends and family members tried to help with cooking and cleaning, but they had their own labor to do in the fields and their own households to run, and so Annie and her younger siblings were often left to fend for themselves. When Annie was five, she developed a bacterial eye disease called trachoma, which resulted in frequent painful infections that left her partially blind. Understandably, given the chaos around her, Annie often acted out and could become quite destructive. She was forever getting into trouble, then hiding to escape her father's brutal punishment. 
When Annie was just eight years old, her mother died, and life changed again. Her father was at this point unfit to look after his three surviving children. Annie had already lost two younger siblings. And so they were divided and sent to live with aunts and uncles. Annie's little sister, Mary, was healthy and good-natured and lovable, and she found a permanent home with her Aunt Ellen. But Annie herself was more than half-blind and considered defiant and unmanageable, and her little brother Jimmy had a deformed hip and TB like his mother. In the end, no one wanted either of them. And so, without anyone telling them where they were being sent, the two children, Annie, now ten years old, and Jimmy, aged five, were loaded on a train and sent to Tewksbury, the state infirmary, also known as the state poorhouse. Tewksbury was every bit as bleak as any poorhouse Charles Dickens ever described, horrendously underfunded and overcrowded. Furthermore, when the two exhausted and disoriented children arrived, they were told that they would have to be separated, Annie to the women's side and Jimmy to the men's. In that moment, she would later say, she realized just how fiercely she loved her brother, more than she had ever loved anyone before. Mercifully, the administrator had a heart. When the two children began to cry, he relented and said that if Jimmy was willing to wear a girl's apron, he could stay with his sister on the women's side. It was a price Jimmy was willing to pay. Although, mercifully, the two did not know it at the time, they spent their first night at Tewksbury curled in a bed in the dead house the small enclosure at the end of the ward where corpses were wheeled to wait for burial. And even after they did know what it was, when it wasn't occupied, of course, it continued to be their play space. There was simply nowhere else for them to play in the crowded ward. The ward itself was filled with old women, mostly Irish, poor, diseased, and dying. And dying was what the old women talked about. Not their own impending deaths, but the deaths they'd seen during the Great Famine back in Ireland. Annie heard them speak of it so often, she could see it in her own mind's eye. Mothers dead in their cabins, with dead children beside them. Bodies by the roadside waiting to be buried. This was the soundtrack Annie and Jimmy listened to every day. At night, it was the less-than-comforting sound of rats and mice and cockroaches and the occasional cot being wheeled to the dead house. Annie wasn't afraid of death. She'd seen it over and over again, first at home, now at Tewksbury. But then one night, about four months after their arrival, it came for her beloved brother. Jimmy had been unusually sick for a few days, and then he passed one night while Annie was asleep. 
When she woke in the darkness and discovered that his cot was missing, she knew at once where to look for it. She felt her way to the dead house and found his cot. But when she ran her hands over his small, cold body, something inside her broke. Her screams woke everyone in the hospital that night. But cruel as it was, life went on. Annie had two unsuccessful eye operations while she was still a resident of Tewkesbury. Then, almost a year after she'd arrived, a kind-hearted priest took pity on Annie and got her transferred to a Sisters of Charity hospital where she endured a third, still unsuccessful, operation. Five months later, there were two more operations, this time at a hospital in Boston, again without noticeable benefit. After that disappointment, there was nowhere else to send Annie but back to Tewkesbury. The kind priest had been transferred to another part of the country, so he could no longer advocate on Annie's behalf. Annie had had no idea where they were headed when she and Jimmy were first sent to the poorhouse. But now, she did. When she was told her destination this time, while she was still recovering in the Boston hospital, she was so distraught that she screamed and fastened herself to one of her doctors until she was forcibly peeled away. Annie's first incarceration at Tewkesbury had been in a ward with elderly women. Now she was sent to a ward filled with younger women, some with severe mental illness, some with tuberculosis or cancer or epilepsy. Across the hall was the ward for young women with unwanted pregnancies. It was a tragic place horrifically underfunded, like every other ward in Tewkesbury. Babies were separated from their mothers at birth, taken to a crowded ward with inadequate heating and ventilation, and drugged to keep them quiet at night. Not surprisingly, most of them did not survive beyond a few weeks. But as troubling as her surroundings were, Annie's spirit somehow remained intact. She was happy to be with younger women and even girls, even if their circumstances were tragic. And somehow, her innocence was preserved. As she would later tell her biographer, Much of what I remember about Tewkesbury was indecent, cruel, melancholy, gruesome in the light of grown-up experience but nothing corresponding with my present understanding of these ideas entered my child's mind. Everything interested me. I was not shocked, pained, grieved, or troubled by what happened. Such things happened. It was all the life I knew. In fact, more than surviving, a seed of hope had been planted inside Annie and it grew despite her abysmal surroundings. During her first spell at Tewkesbury, an elderly woman had mentioned to her that there was such a thing as 
Schools for the Blind. And during her second stretch in the poorhouse, Annie was introduced to the magical world of books and newspapers. Now, Annie couldn't read. She couldn't see well enough to make out the type. And at any rate, she was completely illiterate. She'd had no education. But she found a few fellow inmates who were willing to read to her, and it opened up a whole new world. The challenge now was how to reach that world. No one cared about Annie's education or her future except Annie herself. The world had forgotten her. Even the doctors now left her alone. Over the next three years at Tewkesbury, no one tried to fix her eyes. Her fellow inmates laughed when she told them she planned to go to school and to learn to read and write. But still, she clung to this crazy idea. It gave her something to live for. And it just so happened that the most famous school of its kind at the time, the Perkins Institution for the Blind, was only 20 miles away from Tewkesbury. But it might as well have been on another planet. You see, it cost a significant amount of money to attend Perkins. The students there were the daughters and sons of ministers and teachers and doctors and politicians. They were not the abandoned offspring of illiterate Irish immigrants. But this is where destiny intervened. Dr. Samuel Howe, the founder of the Perkins Institution, was also for a time the chair of the State Board of Charities of Massachusetts. His very last official act as chair was a motion to formally investigate Tewkesbury, which was rumored to be the site of all kinds of horrors and crimes. Dr. Howe didn't visit Tewkesbury himself. Instead, he sent a man named Frank Sanborn. Somehow the news of this impending investigation trickled down to the inmates of Tewkesbury. If you want to get out, the older women told Annie, you need to get a message to Frank Sanborn when he comes to inspect us. And when the day of that inspection finally arrived... Word flew around Annie's ward. Frank Sanborn was somewhere on the grounds. But how to find him? Annie couldn't see well enough to distinguish one man from another. All she could make out were general outlines. But she managed to track down the group of officials, and she followed them from ward to ward, rehearsing what she would say if and when she got the opportunity. But time slipped past, and suddenly the delegation was at the gate, preparing to leave. It was Annie's last chance. If she didn't seize the moment, her hope of ever leaving Tewkesbury would be gone. It is amazing to me that history can sometimes pivot on such small moments, such seemingly insignificant acts of courage. And it did take courage for poor, illiterate Annie to hurl herself into the midst of those important men. 
After all her rehearsing, all she could get out was, Mr. Sanburn, Mr. Sanburn, I want to go to school. That simple, heartfelt plea changed the course of Annie's life and Helen Keller's life and, to a lesser extent, the lives of everyone who those two women impacted. And that was quite a number of people. The conversation at the gate that afternoon was very brief. Annie was asked what was wrong with her and how long she'd been at Tewksbury. She could answer the first question, I can't see very well. But she had no idea how long she'd been in the poorhouse. And that was it. But some days, or perhaps even weeks later, a woman came and told Annie that her plea had been heard. She was going away to school. She was supplied with two plain calico dresses, two coarse, unbleached chemises, two pairs of black cotton stockings, and a pair of shoes that pinched her feet. Then she was led to the Black Maria, the wagon used to transport Tewksbury's inmates, and taken to the train station. The last words of farewell from Tewksbury came from Tim, the Black Maria's driver. Don't ever come back to this place, do you hear? he told her. Forget this, and you will be all right. A train took Annie the rest of the way to school. While on the train, a well-meaning woman handed her an apple and a piece of bread and butter, patting her on the head and calling her a poor child. Annie's face burned. As she would later write, The essence of poverty is shame. In that moment, an intense realization of the ugliness of my appearance seized me. I knew that the calico dress which I had thought rather pretty when they put it on me was, in fact, the cause of the woman's pity. The inadequacy of my outfit did not dawn on me until the woman pitied me. Annie entered the Perkins Institution on October 7, 1880, and found still more shame waiting for her. When asked to spell her name for the teacher in her first class— in front of all the other students, she had to confess that she couldn't. She was 14 years old, and she couldn't even spell her own name. There was still more humiliation that night, when a teacher had to borrow a nightgown for her from another girl. It was incomprehensible to the other students, but Annie had never even slept in a nightgown let alone owned one of her own. That night, and for many nights after, Annie cried herself to sleep. In so many ways, Annie's first months at Perkins were an ordeal. For years, she dreamt of getting an education, of being liberated from the poorhouse, but she was completely unprepared for how lonely she would be. She had absolutely nothing in common with the other girls and their protected middle and upper class lives. And they, in turn, made it abundantly clear that Annie's poor, 
Irish Catholic heritage made her inferior, someone to be pitied. And then there were the classes themselves. Annie had to start somewhere, so the teachers put her with the little girls learning to weave mats. More humiliation. But Annie's fierce spirit kept her going. She fought her way through every class in spite of, or perhaps fueled by the laughter of the other students and even the ridicule of some of her teachers. More than once, she spoke out angrily in her own defense, and her defiance nearly got her expelled on more than one occasion. But in time, Annie came to trust and even love a few of her teachers, and that made all the difference. One of them in particular, Miss Mary Moore, recognized that thanks to Annie's very unusual childhood, there were two sides to her mind, one as undeveloped and undisciplined as a small child, the other mature and eager beyond its years. The trick was to gradually tame and discipline the lawless side of Annie's mind so that she could learn and reach her full potential. Over the next five and a half years, Annie did just that. She learned reading and writing and mathematics, history and music and literature. Along the way, she had two more surgeries on her eyes, and this time, they were successful. She still couldn't see as well as most people, but she could now make out words on a printed page. She could even thread a needle without using her tongue, She was delirious with joy. Eight students graduated from Perkins in June 1886, four girls and four boys. And Annie, the girl who couldn't even spell her own name when she'd arrived, was their valedictorian. A volunteer at the school, a wealthy sea captain's widow named Mrs. Hopkins, had taken Annie under her wing, and she now provided Annie with a suitable graduation outfit. A custom-made white muslin dress with elbow sleeves and three ruffles edged with Belgian lace. To complete the outfit, white slippers, a pink sash, and a corsage of matching pink roses. With her hair piled gracefully on her head and ringlets at her temples, Miss Annie Sullivan looked nothing like the scrawny girl who had arrived at Perkins in a plain calico dress. But even as she was celebrating her victory, on the very afternoon that she gave her triumphant valedictorian speech, Annie was secretly troubled. As she would later write, I was twenty years old and I realized that I did not know a single subject thoroughly. I did not know if there was any sort of work I could do to earn my living. For weeks that problem had been in my mind and in the minds of my friends. The thought that I might have to return to Tewkesbury after all stabbed my heart. From the peak of happiness I had climbed, I suddenly tumbled into despair. Annie was invited to the Cape Cod home of her benefactor, Mrs. Hopkins, 
immediately after her graduation, and there she considered her options. She could be an attendant to young children. She could seek funding to attend normal school to become a teacher. She could wash dishes in a restaurant. She could sell books from house to house. She was still mulling over her options in August when a letter arrived that changed everything. I hope you've enjoyed part one of Anne Sullivan's story, Life Before Helen. To do Anne's story justice, I've divided it into two parts. Part two, Companions for Life, will be available on May 14th. My primary source for this hintertale was the book The Deliverer of Helen Keller, Anne Sullivan Macy. It was written by Nella Brady and first published in 1934. This episode of Hintertales was written, narrated, and produced by Rachel Dunstan Muller, with music and sound effects by zapsplat.com. Learn more about my work at racheldunstonmuller.com. <laughs>